We're starting a series. This fall, we're going to be going 11 weeks, and then we'll take a break right before Thanksgiving. But these 11 weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at what are, what are some of the frequently asked questions about Christianity, both from within Christianity, which is to say, you could be someone, <clears throat> we've talked about this before in the past, if you guys have been around for a while, we've said, this is, this is one of those kind of spiritual continuum maps, and it's, it's not like a, a pigeonhole or anything, it's just these are, these are movements or uh, places that, that people who are followers of Christ tend to self-identify with, where they say, either the person says, well, I'm exploring, I haven't really made that faith commitment. People who are in that category, man, frequently ask questions. This is very appropriate, you know, for them because maybe they're exploring, they're kicking the tires of faith. They have real intellectual questions. Even someone who's just made an initial commitment and they're kind of figuring out what does it mean to have a personal relationship with Jesus. These frequently asked questions come up. Or even if someone say, no, I would say I'm close to Christ or, or I'm Christ-centered. Whatever area you might be in, you might be thinking, you know, I would really love to be equipped just to help other people. I, I was talking to a guy this last weekend, and uh, he was out at the table in the mall, and he said he's an engineer, and he's been a part of the uh, Muslim friendship team for a while with Wes Tucker. And he said, you know what's so cool? He goes, these four engineering students from the Middle East just moved in next door to me. And he's like, they're engineers, and I'm an engineer. And, you know, I, they seem really friendly and stuff. And, and he was so excited. So he was just seeking to be equipped to say, I want to be able to do this thing that Jesus called us to do, which is salt and light. In the world to make an impact. So wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, I think this series is going to be significant for you and for the people who are around you. And so for the series, we're going to be looking at a lot of different topics like suffering. That'll be next week. You know, how could how could God really allow evil and, and travesty and innocent suffering to happen to people. Um, we'll look at literalism. I mean, isn't, isn't the Bible, if you take the Bible literally, isn't it regressive? It's outdated. I mean, we just need to really kind of uh, update it or, you know, take the portions that apply to us, but not, not necessarily all of it. Or injustice. Hasn't, hasn't a lot of bad stuff been done by Christians? Doesn't that kind of uh, take away this, you know, the ground in which they're standing to say this is this Jesus we follow is true? What about hell? Is is God just an angry judge? I mean, you get, you get something wrong on a test and then eternal punishment. And all of these questions that arise frequently ask questions both from within and without the church and Christianity. And so this evening what we're going to do is we're going to start with one that's maybe, maybe one of the most challenging. Tonight's probably going to be the most philosophical. Uh, other ones won't be quite as much, but we kind of need to lay some groundwork for where we're going in this whole series. So take a look at the screen. I want you to watch this uh, short video here that, that introduces this topic of what we call exclusivity or the narrowness of Christianity. If you lay claim to the truth, then if you say that your way is the only way and that your truth is the only truth, you'd better be right. I'm Chris and I would describe myself as just another disaffected church kid. Um, I grew up in the church. Um, and was very involved from a very young age. My earliest memories are of being in church. Um, I went every 
Sunday, Wednesday, um, and almost every day in between. Just um, was involved in every program, Awana, youth group, everything. My second earliest memory of church was a uh, was me sitting in the pew and the pastor talking about heaven. And he was saying, when we go to heaven, um, we will we'll just be praising God all day, every day, for eternity. And I remember thinking, wow, if it's anything like church, I don't want to go to heaven. When I really became a skeptic was when I, uh, when I got into college and I started taking Bible classes. Because the more I learned about the Bible, the less I actually believed. But you're trying to tell me that Christians are the only ones that are right just because they say so because every other religion out there says the same thing who has the arrogance to say that if Christians are right then I guess Mormons must be wrong um, Islam must be wrong Buddhists um, and that's the majority of the, that's the majority of the world right there Buddhists and uh, Islam um, I mean where do you draw the line really as to who is right even with among Christianity there's so many differences there's so many different beliefs um, there's so many veins of Christianity where do you draw that line to where you're wrong we're right and we're going to heaven and you're not How can that be if, if God is loving and God is graceful and God is forgiving? Any way you slice it, that means that the majority of people that have ever lived are going to hell. And how could a God that's full of love and forgiveness send the overwhelming majority of people that have ever lived to hell? When there's a decision as important as heaven or hell I feel like you can't just believe it you have to challenge that because it's such an important decision and if you haven't challenged it how can you really know what you believe how can there truly be only one right answer when there are so many lives with so many experiences and so many differences between everybody how can there only be just one way and that just doesn't make sense to me so this gentleman in the video brings up a lot of issues we're not going to cover all of them tonight. In this series, we're going to be talking about some of those. He brought up you know, the question of hell. We're going to spend one whole week on that, the person of Jesus and different things. Tonight, I want to look at just one sliver of something that he brought up that I said. It's, it, it's, it's hugely significant right now in the world and the culture we're living in. And that is this idea of the, the, the exclusivity of Christianity. It's this idea. The reason that we shouldn't make these exclusive, narrow, only way, one way claims is that it's dangerous. How is it dangerous? Well, because it, it leads to oppression. 
it leads to marginalizing people because they're not in your group. They're not in your club. And so it's easy to kind of stereotype them. It's, it's easy to start uh, oppressing them, even, even potentially violence against them. So religious exclusivity, the claim is, it's destructive. It's divisive in our, in our culture and in our world. Let me read for you. If you, want to, if you have your Bibles, open to John 14. John chapter 14. We're just going to read the very first uh, verse through verse 11. Let me give you a little bit of context here. It's weeks away. And as he's doing it, he's been building an almost a crescendo, speaking of the cross, speaking of what, what he's going to encounter. And he says things like, where I'm going, you can't follow me here. You've been following me for three years. You can't follow me here. And, you know, Peter replies and says, I'll follow you and I'll lay my life down for you. And then, you know, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me, you know, three times. That's the context. And, and right there, chapter 14 picks up with this John 14, verse 1. Jesus says to them who have just been listening to this and engage in this conversation, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way. There's sort of a key religious term. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, Thomas replies this, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how could we possibly know the way? Now, this next statement, this is where Christianity departs. This is where Jesus departs from every other world religion or world religious leader. Religions typically say this. A leader will say, um, I know the way, I've discovered the way, I can show you the way, I can point to the way, I can, I can help you find the way, um, or I can teach you the way so that you can get to the way. And then Jesus answers this way. Jesus answered, I am. I am the way. And then he goes on to elaborate, and the truth and the life. And then here's this narrow statement. No one comes to the Father. That's ultimate reality. No one does except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. And then not Thomas, but this time Philip replies and says, Lord, show us the father. That'll be enough for us. We'll be all good. Just show us the father. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do, do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus puts his finger here on this issue of religious exclusivity, maybe, or as clear as he does anywhere else. He does multiple places all throughout the Gospels. His apprentices, Paul and Peter and the others who write after him, continually go back. There's no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. They keep speaking of this narrow way to God. But the concern is to insist, like if we're going to really insist that, that if, if you're going to insist that you have a better grasp on spiritual reality, isn't that intolerant? Um, there was an email survey that was done by a Nicole Diamond Austin a few years ago in New York City. 
in which she, she wanted to survey New Yorkers who were young, like in their 20s. What are your biggest concerns, objections about these frequently asked questions? How, how, how would you put it? Uh, one woman, Blair, 24 years old, this is how she responded. How could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally true and equally valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Another young man who was a, a British man in his 20s living in New York named Jeff wrote back this. Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if all other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. Um, now, the first thing I want to say is, in a way, a very significant way, I agree with this statement that religion, unqualified, tends to lead toward divisiveness, tends to lead toward even marginalization or oppression of others. It tends to, as Tim Keller puts it, religion tends to create a slippery slope in the heart. And here's, he goes on to explain it this way. He says, here's what I mean. If your religion tells you that you have the truth and no one else does, you're probably going to feel a little superior to them. And then if you add to that, if your religion tells you that if you, if you observe, if you practice, if you perform this truth, then you'll be accepted by God. And other people won't. And so it's going to be very easy again to start marginalizing these sorts of people, to look down, to talk to them in different ways, to, uh, to stereotype them. Um, so, so what do we do? Religion is divisive. I mean, it, it has been historically. So what do we do in light of that? Well, let me give you a couple different examples. If you have your bulletin with you, you can follow along. I, I put kind of an outline in there of uh, some of the big points that we're going to go over. But I want to give you three, three common responses that, that, that our world has had to this concern, because we probably all have this concern, things that are divisive, that, that are destructive. What do we do? Well, the first common response has been to, and it's number one in your outline there, to, out, to, to control religion, uh, outlaw it, or at least have extreme state civic control on this. We see examples of this. Uh, Soviet Russia did this in the 20th century. Uh, the communist China, uh, the state, uh, did this. The Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the same thing happened in a different way. Nazi Germany did something like this. But they, they were all determined to very tightly control religious practice in order to keep it from being divisive or at least eroding the power of the state. What were the results of that? Did it bring more peace? No. My goodness. 20th century has, has been called the bloodiest century of the world because all these attempts, all they did is they brought deep, destructive oppression. Uh, Alistair McGrath, he's a historian who's at Oxford. He wrote a, he wrote a history of... of of sort of secular thought, and in it he said this about, uh, about the 20th century. He said, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. And here's what it is. That the greatest intolerance and violence of that century 
were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. And he said that's a great historical paradox that we still puzzle over as we look at the, this movement toward this anti-religion, sort of secular atheism of the 20th century. In reality, what happened when they tried to control that? Um, just think about the case of Christianity. In Christianity, when any time that the state has tried to control, the church has blossomed. It's had to go underground oftentimes, but it has absolutely blossomed. For instance, uh, Chinese communists, they expelled Western missionaries after, after World War II. They kicked out all Western missionaries. They shut the door, and they were sure, they were sure that this was the end of Christianity, that they had put an absolute end to it. In fact, in 1949, there were, there were 4 million Four million Christians in China in 1949. Well, in about 1978, they started loosening up some of those restrictions. They've been slowly loosening them. Still a lot of persecution going on, but a lot more openness to that. And what they found was amazing. Today, the Chinese government recently recognized, this is what they recognized, that of the, the majority of their people are atheistic, secular. But of the 300 million who would, who would say they're religious in the country, 50 million of them are part of this underground church. That's what the Chinese recognize. There was a Pew study done in 2010 which estimated that 67 million Christians are in China to this day. It has absolutely exploded. And what they found after they opened the doors and we saw is this church, the reason why it had grown like this is because they kicked all the Westerners out, and then it got embedded. It got indigenous. The leaders of the church became indigenous Chinese. They owned it. It was it, this is our thing. We're Chinese Christians, and so there was this whole house church movement. Now, along with this control thing in the in the in the twentieth century, there was a there was a thesis that that was believed. It's called the secularization thesis, and here's what it said. Um, we needed religion for a while, kind of like in an evolutionary way. Pre-modern man, you know, gosh, we don't understand the world. We don't understand the forces. And so we kind of need religion to cope, right? But here's, here's the thesis. As we advance, as we get more uh, scientifically uh, savvy, as, as we're able to control our environments, as we have greater understanding, greater technological advancement and so forth, Religion will just kind of, it'll, it'll die out. It just won't be needed. It's, it's, it's necessary sort of for where we're at in the evolutionary scheme, but it really won't be needed in any way. Well, this secularization thesis has largely been discredited. Now, nearly all major religions are growing in the world. I mean, just to give you an idea, Korea, about 100 years ago, was 1% Christian. Right now, it's about 50%. In one year, as Korea has, has come into much more of a Western understanding or grabbed onto a Western approach of technology and science and all that stuff, so they're moving in that direction that the seculars thought they would, they will lose religion. They're becoming more religious in this way. We saw even just within China. Um, in fact, Christianity is especially growing right now in the developing parts of the world. Sub-Saharan Africa, Christianity is booming. South Asia, it is booming. South America, it is booming. So even if it's withering here in the West, which in some areas it is, it is exploding. Evangelical and Pentecostal churches are exploding in those parts of the world. In fact, for the first time, the majority of Christians exist in the southern hemisphere of the world and the eastern hemisphere of the world. 
And it's believed that in the next 50 to 100 years, China will likely become the center, the culture shapers of the Christian church in the future, much like Great Britain was, and then the U.S. has been, you know, prior to that, it was, it was in different parts of the Middle East, that it'll be, it'll be China in the future. Religion is growing. Religion is not something that is exterior, tangential, unimportant, we'll, we'll get past it. It's shown to be, this is a bitter pill for seculars to swallow, it's shown to be core, it's shown to be central to who we are as human beings. Um, now, another response to the dangers of uh, religious exclusivity, first one's control. This one's a little bit more common in where we are right now. This one, I would say, has been going on here. This is where we're living largely. And this is to condemn religion. Um, it's to socially discourage it. Uh, it's to make it embarrassing to make a exclusive religious claim. It's to make it laughable. That's what I mean by condemning. Let's make it so silly that you will be embarrassed to make a narrow exclusive claim because you'll be ridiculed. So it's, it's more of a social discouragement of certain religious beliefs. How do you do this? Simple. This is, this is the way it's been done here in the West. What you do is you come up with axioms. You come up with these little bumper sticker state, these, these beliefs, these little statements, and then you embed them in culture by stating it and restating it and stating it and restating it again and again so that these axioms become like common knowledge. So that if you were to speak against it, you don't even, you don't even think about it. It's just, what? That's absurd because this is common shared knowledge in our world. Let me, let me give you um, four here. Here's the first one. This is, this is the first axiom that's used to condemn religion. And again, large in the West here. All major religions are equally true and basically teach the same thing. Have you heard this? I mean, you might even say, ah, I don't know, maybe they do. All religions are equally true and basically teach the same thing. Um, let me try to just start with a picture to try to kind of get at what I think is a problem with this. There's a, uh, there's a Greek myth, an ancient Greek myth, of, uh, of a guy named Pocrustes. Isn't that a, how, would, how would you like if your parents named you Pocrustes? Isn't that horrible? Um, Pocrustes is a thief. He's a robber. He lives on the road on the way to Athens. And um, the way he robs people is he has, a, he has his home right on the road. And he, uh, Pocrustes invites travelers in. And he says, you can stay for free at my house. Oh, that's very kind. And he says, and he kind of makes a wager. This is how he gets money. He says, um, actually, I have a magic bed inside. And I don't know, what, do you, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, this bed, it doesn't matter. You might be 6'4", you might be 5'2", you might be this wide, you might be this wide. This bed fits everyone perfectly who lies in it. And he's like, no way. And he goes, I'm telling you, come, come on in. So he comes in, he straps into the bed. If they're too long, if their arms, then he cuts off their arms and their limbs. Yeah. This is Greek, right? He goes, if they're too short, he puts them on the rack and he stretches them. And then he goes, see, I'll take the money. And so he's a thief. Eventually he gets killed. Another Greek hero comes through and is aware of his plans and, and he kills him. But this, is, this has come to be known as a Procrustean bed. Well, here's, here's the idea. Many would say, you know, all the differences between uh, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism and so forth, they're just superficial. They're, they're not significant differences. They're just sort of the exterior things. Um, but, you know, they all believe in God. They're all talking about the same thing. And so that's what's important. Well, here's the thing. If you say, what's this God like you're talking about that they believe in? 
one might respond, well, it's an all-loving spirit in the universe. They will always answer with their Procrustean bed, right? Um, All-loving spirit in the universe, a God. Well, the problem is Buddhists don't even believe in a personal God. So you've got to lop off that limb of Buddhism. Um, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism believe that God's, God holds people responsible for their actions. So you can't reduce all of his attributes to some sort of a mere idea of love. So you've got to lop off that from those religions. Oh, so any, all religions are the same insofar as they agree with you. Insofar as they agree with your Procrustean bed. That's, how, that's the problem with this idea. They all teach the same thing. This is the most arrogant and ethnocentric thing you could possibly say. Because you're saying they all teach the same thing according to how I understand God. It's very, very arrogant by those same terms. See, to assert that doctrine, meaning is, is God three, is God one, is God personal, is this, what's the nature? To assert that that doctrine doesn't matter is itself a doctrine. <laughs> That's a belief. That's a matter of belief. Let's do the second one. Uh, this is the second common attempt that we see in the West a lot to, to, to marginalize, to make fun of um, religion. And that is that each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. Um, how many of you are familiar with the, 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 the old uh, elephant and blind man illustration? You've probably heard that, hopefully, so I don't have to go through the whole thing. Basic idea is that these, these, these blind men stumble upon an elephant, and, and, and none of them can see the entire elephant. And so whatever it is that, that they encounter or perceive, they say that's what, what the whole elephant is like. So one guy feels the side, and he goes, oh, you know, elephant, it's, it's like a wall, it's big and broad. Another guy gets the trunk, and he goes, no, it's flexible, and it's long. And another guy feels the leg, and he goes, no, 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 it's, it's, it's stiff and short and stout. And, and so the idea here is that um, each blind man can only feel part of the elephant, but none, not one of them, can envision the entire elephant. And the illustration is used to say, in the same way, religions of the world... Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, whatever, each have a grasp on a part of spiritual realities, a part of what's ultimately out there, um, but none can have an accurate vision of the whole elephant. Leslie Newbegin was a uh, British missionary to India, and uh, he writes in one of his books how he said, I, I heard this retort made like hundreds of times and it was he said now he's kind of ah, I, don't, yeah, I don't know and he said all of a sudden one day it hit him it hit him what was wrong with this and what's wrong with it is this who is telling the story notice that someone who's telling the story about what let me explain the whole thing to you let me explain it all it's someone who's not blind and can see the entire elephant right so here's the question how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you just said no one has? Do you see the problem there? To say, let me, no, no, one, no one understands the, the macro picture of religion, okay? No one does. Everyone's looking at pieces, but no one understands the macro picture. Is, is that the macro picture? Yes. Oh, so no one understands it but you. You see how it's, it's, it's self-contradictory in this way. Um, no one can know the truth about religion, and I know that to be the truth about religion. It just doesn't work. 
Let me give you the third one. Religious belief, it's too culturally and historically conditioned to be true. Um, Peter Berger is a sociologist, and uh, he wrote in one of his books about the 20th century, he said, was this idea where we came across something called the sociology of knowledge. And what he means is this by that. We like to think that all of the beliefs that we have, I'm a free thinker. You know, I believe things because they're rational and that sort of thing. And he goes, ah, it's not that simple. Many of the beliefs we hold, we hold to them because they line up with the beliefs of people we admire and the people we need in our lives. And he says all of us have, all of us have communities. And so sociologists realize those communities uh, encourage certain beliefs and they discourage other beliefs. But it would, it would be naive to assume that everything you believe is just simply, well, you know, this is what I believe because it's a rational thought. There's, there's more to it than that. Um, now, some infer from that or some conclude that, okay, given this, you know, so I, I, some, some of the things I believe because of my cultural historical moment, right? I'm a, I'm a uh, you know, white Protestant Anglo-Saxon post-enlightenment Westerner living in this, you know, that that so locks me in. I'm so locked in by that, that um, uh, it's impossible for me to judge the rightness or the wrongness of certain beliefs. Um, that's called relativism. Okay, that's that's this idea that we live in a sort of relative state where no one can really assess because all beliefs are simply a result of our cultural, historical context and setting. Um, now, here's again, here's a problem with that. If I claim no belief can be universally true for everyone, is that claim a universal? Is that statement universal? Am I referring to everyone? Okay, so I'm making a universal claim there about everyone. But that belief is the product of my culture in a historical moment. Um, let me explain it this way. Have you ever had someone ask you this? I've, this is sort of a common statement you know, where they're, they're kind of moving toward this. This is a relativist or a, um, um, someone who would say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a pluralist in the sense of everything you know, should be that way. We can't know what's true. And they say, well, if you were born in Morocco, you wouldn't be a Christian. You'd be a, Mor- you know, you'd be this, uh, a Muslim. Meaning, like, oh, I can't, you know, I'm so conditioned by it. The problem is the same thing can be turned back on them. If you were born in Morocco, you wouldn't be a relativist. You'd be an exclusivist. So your belief in relativism is also a part of culture. So it just doesn't work. Here's the point. You can't go on seeing through everything. C.S. Lewis had this, had this great statement one time. He said, the whole point of seeing through something is to see something beyond it. Like, you want a window to be clear so you can see through it to see the garden and the beauty and the hills and that sort of thing. He said, if the garden and the hills and all that stuff is also transparent and you see through everything, you see nothing. <laughs> That's what this falls to. He's saying, oh, everything's a result of that. Then you know nothing. And you can be sure of nothing. And that statement itself cannot be trusted. Um, the problem is, is that relativists relativize themselves to take this position. Last one. It's arrogant to insist your religion is right and to convert others to it. Uh, John Hick is a uh, religion scholar who um, has said he's, he, 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 he grew up Christian. He would now define himself as a, as a pluralist, as a, um, largely a 
religious relativist in this sense. Um, Hick would say, here's the thing. You can think your religion is true and all that. He said, but as soon as you come to the conclusion that there are lots of people in this world who are equally as intelligent as you and equally as good as you and that you're not going to convince them otherwise, if you keep trying to, that's arrogant. And it's divisive. Now, what's the problem with that? I want to ask John Hick, um, do you th- are there people in the world who are equally good and equally intelligent as you, but they disagree with your idea of relativism? Yeah. And you're not going to convince them otherwise? No. Well, why are you still writing trying to convince them? You're doing the very thing that you say is arrogant to do. It's arrogant by your own standards, and it's, and it's divisive. It just doesn't work. So let's go on to the, uh, to the next one here, or uh, number three. This is, this is kind of the third response to, okay, religion is divisive. We could try to control it. We could kind of try to you know, critique it and mock it and that sort of thing. That will kind of control it as well. Or, this is a popular one, privatize it. Radically privatize it. Uh, religious beliefs should be, you know, they can be practiced at home. Do whatever you want. Come to your church or your mosque or your whatever. But, but don't come out into the public square with them. Because it just, it doesn't work. All we do is, we, it's just, it's a log jam and I, I disagree. And you're bringing these presuppositions, religious presuppositions into it. And so you need to just keep that away. Um, one of the most popular uh, uh, people who, 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 who would put this forward is a philosopher by the name of Richard Rorty. And uh, if he were here, he would he'd go, now, nah, hold on, hold on. I'm not against religion. I think it's, you know, per se, it's fine. It's just, here's the point. It doesn't work in the public sector. So if you're religious and you come to the public sector, leave your, your religious worldview commitments, okay, your big narrative of how the world is and what's, how it's made and what the purpose is. Leave that here. Let's just, let's just circle around. Let's come up with policy that works about really important things like AIDS and education and, and, and poverty and all of those issues, but, but leave your worldview religious commitments to the side. Why doesn't that work? Well, um, a Tim Keller, he, uh, he says it this way. He says, when you come into the public square, it is impossible to leave your convictions about ultimate issues behind. And then he gives this example. He says, okay, um, Let's pick an easy one, something that's not too, too horribly, you know, debated. How about marriage and divorce laws? Okay. Um, so he says, okay, let's just, let's just come up with a, with a view of what works with regarding, you know, divorce laws and that sort of thing. Um, the problem is it's impossible to craft laws about what works apart from your particular world view. Um, think of it this way. It's going to depend on what's the purpose of marriage? What is it? Um, if, if you think that marriage is mainly for the rearing of children and to benefit society, you're going to make divorce really hard, aren't you? If you think that marriage is it's mainly for the happiness, the emotional fulfillment of the adults who enter it, you're going to make marriage really easy, aren't you? See, the former view... Is, is grounded in a view of what it means to be human, of, of human flourishing, which says family is greater than the individual. And so cultures and uh, religions like you know, Confucianism 
and uh, Judaism and Christianity would fall into more of this traditional understanding. The latter approach is much more of an individualistic view of human nature that's based on kind of like enlightenment thinking. And so Keller concludes, he says, the divorce laws that you think will work depend on prior beliefs about what it means to be happy and to be fully human. See, no, no one can leave their convictions. No one can leave those big worldview convictions. When we come even to talk policy, we bring our worldview into it about what it means to be human, what it means to flourish, and that sort of thing. So where are we? You may be asking yourself, where are we? Where is this going? Um, here's the conclusion. This is in your notes there. All fundamental truth claims, by definition, are exclusive. All of us, every single one of us, the secularists, the religious, doesn't matter, all of us have fundamental, unprovable faith commitments that we think, we're sure, are superior to other ideas. So what do we do? Well, we talked earlier about the slippery slope in the heart. Remember we said, okay, here's the problem, though. Religion tends to do this to the heart where it tends to make you think you're superior because you have this knowledge and because you perform this spiritual truth, uh, you're, you're morally superior or in some way superior to others. So there's only one question remaining, I would suggest. That's also in your outline there. Which fundamentals will lead their believers to be the most loving and receptive to those with whom they differ? Which, which fundamental claims will not lead to arrogance, not lead to violence, not lead to marginalization of others? And I would suggest there's only one worldview which has fundamentals, which if, if embraced, if taken with them, cannot, they can't lead in that direction. See, for Christianity, we start with this idea, a doctrine, a teaching, something called the image of God. That every, it's a universal thing. Every single human being bears the image of God. Every single human being is the most sacred creation on earth. Um, so this, this leads us to believe that every human being, regardless of your religion or your philosophy, is capable of great beauty, of great wisdom, of great goodness. It leads Christians to expect that non-believers may even live better than their mistaken beliefs would lead them to. Because they're made in the image of God, they, they can't get away from that. Now we also have a doctrine called total depravity, the, the universal sinfulness of all people. This leads Christians to expect that believers, Christians, will be worse in practice than their true beliefs should make them. We're not going to hold up to what we do because we're deeply broken and sinful. So here's the point with those two things. There is plenty of ground for respectful cooperation within the Christian worldview with people who differ with us, people of other faiths. Now, not only does Christianity lead its members to believe that, that people of, of other faiths have goodness and wisdom. Let me go even further. It also leads Christians to expect that many people who are not believers will be morally superior to them. They will live morally exemplary lives. They will be nicer. They will be kinder. They will be wiser. What? See, most people in our culture believe this about the whole religion. If there's a God, we can relate to him. He'll take us to heaven. 
through leading a good moral life. We'll call this the moral improvement view. That's the way that God will accept you, and that's the way that you relate to God as being, being a good person. Christianity teaches the very opposite. Jesus does not tell us how to live so that we can sort of like attain or earn or merit salvation. Rather, Jesus comes to forgive and to save us through his death on our behalf, for us, in our place. God's grace does not come to people who, are, who morally outperform the others. That's not who God's grace comes to. That's the moral improvement view. The biblical view is that God's grace does not come to those who morally outperform others, but it comes to those who admit their failure to perform, absolute failure, admit they're bankrupt. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the, remember? You guys need to read your Bibles more. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the people who recognize they have nothing. They've got nothing to claim on God. God doesn't owe them anything. They don't don't deserve anything. And he says, that's the person I've come for. Jesus had this interaction with this these one group of people, and he said, uh, and he's talking about being, being, being spiritually sick, almost like, you know, we might think of a cancer. And all of his leaders said, we're not sick, we're healthy. And he said, I haven't come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. I can't do anything for you. I know that's, I think, one of the scariest statements in the whole Bible. I can't help you. God's saying, I can't help you. I haven't come for you. I've come for those who recognize they are spiritually sick. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through eight, one through 9 in closing here. Paul the Apostle, who is impacted, transformed, a guy who leaned on the moral improvement view for his whole life and realized he was utterly bankrupt, came to this conclusion as an apprentice of Jesus. He said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them were at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But now we're better. We're not like those crummy people. God loves us more. We're morally superior. We should treat them. He says, but but because of his great love for us. It has nothing to do with us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead, we were worthless. We didn't deserve it in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It says, and God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in the kindness to us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus and then there's this famous statement made at the end that many of us have, might have memorized. For it is by grace you are connected to ultimate reality. It's not moral improvement. Through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's a gift for, of, from God. It's not by works. It's not by moral improvement. So that you may not live in pride. You may not live with a sense of superiority over anyone else in your life. Because you recognize it's completely, this is totally different than any other religious system. It has nothing to do about what you do. It has to do with what Jesus has done. See, only the gospel, I would suggest, has the resources to both explain 
the brokenness in humanity and to expunge the brokenness in humanity and that arrogance and to make its followers, this is the coolest part, to make its followers agents of reconciliation, agents of peace. See, it's, it's not fundamentalism unqualified, which is dangerous. It's what are your fundamentals? And let me tell you what the biggest one is here as we close. We're going to take communion here in a second. This is the biggest one. This is the biggest reason why no one who throws their life in with Jesus and, and, and consistently follows him could possibly lead into a life of oppression and marginalization and the sense of superiority. What is at the center of the Christian faith? The very the heart, the very center of the Christian faith is a man hanging on a cross, dying for those who disagreed with him. More than that, who hated him and were killing him. That's the center of your faith if you're a Christian. The heart. A man dying for those who hated and despised him. There is no way an apprentice of Jesus, what you've seen me do, do likewise, Jesus said, could possibly lead toward oppression.